0: You're listening to the Story Embers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to guiding and inspiring Christian storytellers to glorify God with excellent craftsmanship. I'm your host, Grace Livingston. Welcome to our second episode Christian Fantasy and Allegory What We Like and Dislike. Story member staff members Josiah DeGraff, Deus Lamb, and Brandon Miller, and we're going to be discussing all things Christian fantasy and allegory. Now, last episode, you guys studied the state of Christian fiction kind of as a whole, and you ended with mentioning the rise of speculative fiction that you're seeing across the market. Kind of leading off of that and into today's episode, what do you think are some of the pros and cons that are coming with that rise in specfic and the rise in fantasy in general? in the Christian market today?
1: Okay, yeah, so with the with the rise of Christian speculative fiction, then well, what do I think about this personally? I think it is a, a great thing, but it seems to go a little too fast. And I think some people jump on it as like a bandwagon without really knowing what they're doing. And you know, genre, as I've learned over the years, is really a major part of storytelling. And uh, if, if you jump into a genre without really understanding it, uh, you're going to kind of sh- maybe shame that genre. Uh, so, jump in with discretion and also really you know consider your options because other genres are really great, but some things I do love about speculative fiction i mean it 's got some of my favorite books in it for one. I think it is a wonderful way to for Christian authors to reach into the non christian market i 'd say uh, the reason being the creative joy that comes with entering a new world, I think it 's a little bit easier to Uh, Reach out just naturally with people and then bring strong truths, but in a subtle way. Now, often that is not done well, but it can be. So I think there's a lot of potential there if you just mine it and mine it well.
2: I think part of, especially for fantasy, part of the potential there is that you have a lot of genres where if you have an atheist reading, you know, a contemporary book, they aren't expecting to read about God. They're not going to want to read about God. But if they're reading a fantasy book, they're already there for spiritual stuff. Pagan or Christian, they're already expecting mm-hmm. angels and, and, and gods and, and supernatural powers. And so you can kind of get in the back door a little bit through the genre that way. Yeah, like, that's a really interesting point.
3: We, we do have the expectation because you know during you know historically during the medieval ages the world was a lot more religious that so when people read fantasy there you know there's a bit more of a return to this world where, where there's these supernatural beings and anything can happen and there's you know the expectation that there are going to be gods and uh, and angels and demons and, and all of these things we, we can certainly come into a you know make it not work by having really sloppy Christian analogs present there. Mm -hmm. But I I hadn't thought about that specific aspect before, but you're right that that's that's a significant opportunity we have on that front.
1: Mm -hmm. And this actually uh, brings us back to the whole question of, you know, what's the point of being a Christian writer? Because, you know, you may start off thinking, oh, I'm going to be a Christian writer. I'm going to like convert a million people. And it may happen, may not. Um, but what you'll probably discover, the more you start writing, the more you understand the media that you're dealing with is fiction. Fiction is not ideally suited to uh, present a real technical message. I, I do believe people sometimes can get saved through fiction, but I think it's not that common. Far less than through conversations and nonfiction. But generally, what what fiction does is it creates like a culture that's interested in discussing and learning more about this this christianity thing and i i think of like a new cry the country or jd or testerton the, the two great examples in my mind and there's other very very good ones but i always go back to those too um some of those it can be more explicitly christian so it can be done but you look at the people around you are christians and how they can get converted you know for a lot of them it wasn't just they're walking around one day and somebody presented the gospel and they got saved it could be something subtle that caught their attention like I know Bunyan talks about in his biography, he was just listening to these women talk, and I think it was it was just like the like the joy in their attitudes that captivated him and, and convicted him. And the a small things. So, you know, just seeing the beauty of God's created order and the, the morality and, and how abiding by the morality leads to blessing even in the midst of struggle. That yeah. just noticing that makes people makes people so much more likely to investigate, you know, where does this beauty come from? It's just in our nature to ask that question. So simple things can have profound impact. Mm
3: -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, what you said, Deus, reminds me of the, you know, the, 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 the famous quote that's, you know, attributed to, to Dostoevsky, that I believe is a bit paraphrased modified from, from what he said and he, perhaps didn't quite mean in the way that people take it from, but, but the, the quote and the idea that beauty will save the world. Mm. You know, in, in the context of the book, you know, the, the character who says it may not be completely sincere when he, when he says that, um, but I think one of the reasons we, we've latched onto that quote Somewhat regardless of the original authorial intent, is the fact that that rings true in some way for all of us. I mean, I think of you know, what, what, what uh, Whitaker Chamber writes in his work, Witness, um, where he talks about leaving the, the, an atheistic, communistic ideology for Christianity. That, you know, what was it com- that converted him? Well, it was looking at his, his young son and just marveling at his ear. Mm. The design and the beauty in it, and realizing that what beauty does is it awakens within us the sense of the transcendent. Um, and if as storytellers, if we can do that, regardless of what if we mention the name of Christ or not, we can evoke in our readers that sense that there is something more to this world than just this materialistic stuff. We've done something profound.
2: Yes. And I think part of when Christians sit down and they're like, how do I write a Christian book for a secular audience without being explicitly Christian and getting rejected out of the gate? I don't know if you guys have read a book, um, Apostate by Kevin Swanson. He goes through and he documents how public figures, novelists, like he talks about Shakespeare and Mark Twain, and all of these historical figures that have written and how they have pulled the culture away from Christ. And they didn't do it by writing books that said, you know, there is no God. Mm-hmm. They did it by writing books that had no moral codes. You know, they, they wrote books where there was no right and wrong, and where everything was relative. And as they wrote the books that way, and they then the culture slowly started to turn that way. It's a really fascinating book. Um, but... One of the best ways that, that Christians can, can affect the secular uh, publishing industry is just to write books where we are reintroducing moral absolutes. There, mm-hmm. there are so many people in the world that don't believe in a moral absolute. And if you just write a book where there is a moral absolute, you're already stepping back towards Christianity without scaring off readers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Not believing that there's a right and wrong is a flawed ideology. There are problems with that. Just to write a book that explores the problems with the everything is relative school of thought is a step in the right direction, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. I think of us kind of like the the John the Baptist figures where we may not be the way for people, but we're preparing the way. And uh, I think storytelling has a, a great ability to prepare the way for some of that preachers to come in and really have a, a great impact.
2: And, and I think to kind of state the obvious but often forgotten, uh, great stories get read. Right. Because great stories are great stories. This is kind of why we're here at Story Embers. If you want to affect people and to change, change the culture through stories, you have to write great stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's the best way to get read whether you're writing for a secular audience or christian audience or penguins you're going for great stories
3: i'm just gonna say please do write
2: that book for penguins
3: <laughs> i think there's a great work there and you are ideally situated to put yourself in that gap
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the next social justice issues is stories for penguins <laughs> <laughs> <write> for penguins <laughs> Hey, there's a Penguin Publishing House. Oh my goodness. That went off track.
2: Gracie, do you want to wrap us up?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, Josiah is going to share one of the biggest pitfalls he sees Christian fantasy authors falling into today. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone, to the Story Embers podcast. I'm with SE Stappers, Josiah DeGraff, Deus Lamb, and Brandon Miller. So, Josiah, you have read a lot of books, short stories on the Christian fantasy ends of things, and you say there's one pitfall you see a lot of writers and even published authors falling into today. You want to tell us a bit about that?
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's the it's a word allegory. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps a better term. A misuse of the word allegory because so many Christian authors – I just feel like Tolkien and Lewis are are, are monumental figures in in Christian fiction, Christian literature, and so on, and rightly so. But I feel like a, a lot of Christian authors look at Lewis and they say, or, or they look at Lewis and they look at Bunyan and they say, this, this is about allegory, what does it mean for allegorically? What it means we am are going to write a fantasy world and you're going to change the name of God, I'm going to change the name of Christianity, I'm going to slap the word allegory on it, call it a theme, call it a
1: death. <laughs>
3: well, first off, that's not what Lewis did. That's not what Bunyan did. They're a lot more creative than that. The, the bigger thing, you know, all right. Full verbal literature nerd coming out here. Yes, I'm an English teacher. <laughs> if you look at medie- you know, medieval allegory as a genre, what Lewis and Bunyan did is you know is not the only allegory written out there. You've got Spencer's Fairy Queen. You you get the gospel in there, but you don't get someone who, who, someone who's Jesus with a different name. You 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 get a lot of different. You know, it's not a retelling of the Bible. In a different setting, it's dealing with Christian themes in a different context, and there are these there's these images and there are these symbols, but it's not trying to retell the Bible story. Same thing goes with something like Divine Comedy. It's it's a profound allegory, but it's not and and, and you have the gospel in it as you have the main character Dante going from Hell to Purgatory to Heaven, and that you you got that gospel narrative. But you don't have you know, a symbol of Christ in there because the allegory is coming from other ways. And I think sometimes today we look at Bunny and Lucy and think, oh, allegory means we need to tell the gospel story again in some way in our story. And, and historically, that's not the essential defining trait of an allegory like I think a lot of authors, readers implicitly think today.
2: Just to jump in real quick for any um, of our listeners who are going to end up where I was, um, the the divine comedy is not funny. (laughs) (laughs) I was sorely disappointed, okay?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned uh, uh, Lewis and Bunny a lot, but um, I thought I might jump in with Token a bit because Token has a different perspective than Lewis. In fact, in the Silmarillion, he opens up Arguing very, almost vehemently, that he does not write allegory. <laughs> he just almost hates that term, almost too much, actually. Um, and so I guess the, the term we've given him, I don't know if he used this, but in the modern era, we say he writes symbolic uh, Christian fiction. And so what we mean by symbolic is that there's not a direct parallel between what he has written and, and a sort of event in the Bible. But we have these uh, more Christian ideas, or just you know, general Ideas like um, redemption could be an idea and there can be a symbol of redemption without perhaps a full-blown gospel allegory. And Tolkien did this often. So that's another option people can look into. Um, uh, so with, with Tolkien, one, one thing I've noticed is that you know Tolkien was a great author, but personally, I think even more than being a great author, he was a great philosopher and he had a, a very deep philosophy of literature and, of course, the philosophy behind the symbolism he used. And so, in the world today, people jumping into the Christian specific genre thinking, okay, I want to be a token because it's just so cool. Uh, but the, what they don't realize is that token, token didn't just sit down one day and write Lord of the Rings. It came out of his mind. It came out of his heart, and he developed that over years. Just the mass amount of symbolism we see shows that you know, he'd been mulling over these things for years. He really had a deep understanding of the world before he wrote the Lord of the Rings, the Summer the Rain, et cetera. And so I feel like if you want to jump into allegory or symbolism, don't just uh, start by going, Oh, how do I write a story? And I'll tack on some symbolism, but really, you know, be a philosopher because it, it really is deep stuff. And you've got to really think it over and see how can I bring a, a unique perspective to this? Or um, how can I mine deeper? Because uh, that's, that, that's what made Token, Token.
3: Yeah. No, I think that's really good. And, and you know, I, I've been reading through um, part of Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric for, for school-related subjects. Um, and one of the things he gets into there, he looks at similes and metaphors, um, which you know, form the basis of allegories since you're, 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 you're comparing things essentially. And he talks in there about the fact that he thinks that the greatest inventors of similes, metaphors, allegories in there, and so on, is the philosopher. Because what's a philosopher doing? Well, the philosopher is trying to see the connections between things. And so, you know, if you're doing philosophy accurately, that should make you one of the best people to create these metaphors, these similes, that form the backbone of allegory. Because if if you don't have philosophy, you don't understand these insights, and what you're doing is you're just... Relying on connections, other people have already made. Or you're making sloppy connections. You're not making the deep connections many of the great authors um, were able to do. So I wonder if that's one of the things we we lack with the emphasis of allegory in Christian fiction. We want to jump right into the allegory without first thinking. Well, how do we think philosophically?
1: Mm, Yeah, that that's a really compelling point. I think it reminds me of my own writer's journey. At at one point, I kind of got so caught up in the the whole right, right, right aspect. But I had trouble stepping back in my life. And then um, there's times when you want to write more and less. But don't get so caught up in writing that you forget. to just, just sit back, enjoy life, and understand things, make relationships, explore what it means to be human as a real human yourself.
2: I want to take a step back, though, real quick from the, the philosophy of everything and all this deep stuff that, that uh, Deus and Josiah are talking about because I think what really bothers me about allegory more than anything else is, okay, so there's, there's two, two ways to do allegory in modern Christian fiction. You do a medieval retelling of the death and resurrection of Jesus, or you do a medieval retelling of King David, right? (laughs) So I'm reading this one story of King David that my friend is trying to get me to read and it's difficult. And it's not even that it's poorly written the problem is just that I know how it ends. And I think that's the reason I, I don't like a lot of modern allegory. I think that's mm-hmm. part of what you're trying to do when you try and make your allegory, not just the same story with different names. You still want to tell a compelling story that takes the reader somewhere unexpected.
1: Mm-hmm. And part of that could be also telling allegories of, of things that people just don't do. Like, um, you know the flood, apocalypse, the you know, early church age, Acts, things like that. There's there's things people just don't do allegories about. There's I think there's plenty of untapped potential there. And you're mentioning everything's medieval, um, and you, know, you could do like an ancient Egyptian allegory or a space allegory. Or, ancient uh,
2: Egyptian <laughs> is how it actually happened, though.
1: Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think to a larger point as well. While allegory
3: includes retelling stories in a different way, you know, historically allegory is not just that. Yes. Dante, what Spencer, what Langland, and others are doing is they're not retelling stories; they're telling new stories that have you know they have these symbolical and allegorical meanings. But it's not the same story told again. someday, I, you know, printed to your comment. I actually want to write a story, an allegory of some sort. Of thing. <laughs> It's just, you know, it's so fascinating. Like you get these characters like Saul, like David, like Joab, and they're so complex. Mm-hmm. Like they're, you know, you've got David. This, well, I'm, I'm not going to go into the rant I could about, you know, just how you know, amazingly complex and awesome, you know, First and Second Samuel. But allegory includes retelling. But I think as Christian storytellers, we need to think of, you know, how can we use alleg, how can we write allegories that aren't retellings right. because that's where I think a lot of the real power of allegory comes from, not limited into specific forms.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I like retellings, but there's definitely a lot more untapped potential in the, in the broader area. And uh, I think people would flourish more there if they actually just tried it out.
2: Mm-hmm. And right now Hollywood is busy enough retelling and rebooting. I don't know that we need to do the same thing for the Bible. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I might want to take a little sidestep here and don't just read Christian speculative fiction. I mean, some of it's great, but I found as I've been stepping slowly into more of the speculative fiction world that um, some non-Christian authors, I don't want to rewrite their book. I don't want to have the same themes and messages they do, but the way they do things because they aren't trapped in the same mindset we are, they do things sometimes in a more creative way. And I know I could use the same technique to promote a good theme, a good message.
3: Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a hard, you know, place to navigate as Christian storytellers. Um, since at least for myself, when I'm writing stories in an alternate world, I don't feel memory boundaries, but, you know, I, I do, you know, sometimes wonder, you know, if I don't have a Christian religion here, you know, are all my characters going to hell? Yeah. You know, I, you know I want to think about that with, with my characters. Well, I have no problems with magic in alternate worlds. I struggle putting that, you know, in our own world because it's like, well, how do we deal with, you know, the truth of Christ in this world? And how do you you, you navigate these things together? Sometimes for me, it just feels like there's this tension between creativity and orthodoxy. Mm, Yeah. The line we need to tread as you know Christian storytellers in that we want to be orthodox and hold on to these these rich historical and theological traditions we've been brought up in. But as creatives we also feel need to do new things and it's a tension between the old and the new that we need to navigate in Christian speculative fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. I think this, this brings up a point we, we brought up when we had that tricky subject series that you know the best thing you can do when you come to these situations that well of course. Read your Bible and pray would be the best thing you can do. Um, Besides that, that, the best thing you can do is discuss these things thoroughly um, because they are very tricky subjects. And um, your your case will seem right until someone cross-examines you and someone cross-examines that person, someone cross-examines that person. And in this multitude of perspectives, you can really start to find the truth there. Also regards that balancing act, just encouragement for people that if you do feel like you're losing creativity, but First of all, that shouldn't happen because God's limitlessly creative. But if you, if you do have that fear that that might happen, just know that the truth is so much more beautiful than the best told lie. We do want to tell it as creatively as we possibly can, but you have something a secular author is never going to be able to write. You have truth.
0: Thanks for joining me, Josiah, Deis, and Brandon. And thanks so much, listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about today's panelists, you can visit storyembers.org forward slash about. And make sure to join me next time as I have Josiah, Days, and Brandon on one more time to discuss their favorite contemporary Christian authors on the next episode of the Storyembers podcast.